Hello, you are joining me as I share the table with the 17th lady to come on the podcast, the lovely Annie Bowers. Hi, Annie. Hello. Annie, I am going to say right from the beginning, you are such a treasure to me. Podcasts like this and having been part of the same local church for 14 years now have made me treasure time and relationships. And I know I met you before this memory, but I have a memory of you walking down the street downtown with your parents before you were married. (laughs) I don't know what we were doing or where we were going, but and only sort of knowing you, but being intrigued by your past with missions. And I never could have imagined the way our two lives and our family's lives in particular would weave together the way they have in the current moment. But Annie, how do you feel coming on the podcast tonight? I'm a little bit anxious, but um, I'm trusting that God can make something good out of this and that he can use my my humble story and kind of my little life and that it'll be an encouragement to somebody. Did you play any music on your way over? Did I play music? I don't think that I did. Silence. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Again, I am so glad to have you. I treasure you, as I said. And you are one of many examples of women that I could give where I just step back and marvel and enjoy God's gifts displayed in you. And you exemplify so many things that I am not. And you, I enjoy seeing a woman of peace, a woman of patience, a woman that relentlessly smiles. I look forward to seeing your smile that you are so generous with. And you are a person who is interested in others and delights genuinely in them. And you are also 100% an example to me of a submissive wife who honors her husband. And I am so thankful for you, Annie, and the women of our church, of course. And I realize I should ask you, do you remember (laughs) when we first met? I don't remember when we first met. I remember uh, little things like being downtown together Mm -hmm. and that you got a skirt of mine at one of the first clothes swaps. Oh, yeah? And I got so excited when I actually saw you wearing it. And I remember that. I remember you being at our wedding. Yeah. But at that point, I think your y'all's friendship was more with Jared, and I hadn't mm-hmm. really connected uh, personally with you yet. And I always thought you were, like, beautiful and glamorous. That's, <laughs> that's the main thing. It's your striking long hair. and Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember what I'm talking about with your parents? Did they come visit or? I don't. No. If it had been before we got married, it must have been around the season of us getting married Mm -hmm. Um, because they came to visit. Obviously, they came up for the wedding and a couple weeks beforehand. But all right, let's get into your soil. And Annie, will you share with everyone where you grew up? Yeah. So I ran this past my husband because I was trying to think about the easiest way to get (laughs) it out at the beginning. But my parents uh, worked as missionaries. And so I was born in Costa Rica. And I have two older brothers who were also born there and spent a few years there. Then we moved to El Salvador for my elementary years. Then we moved back to Costa Rica for my middle and high school. And interspersed through that, we spent years in the States uh, here in Virginia. So my, as missionaries, my parents would spend four years on the field and then we'd come back for a year and visit churches and they would share about their ministry. So lots of different places, but most of the time in Costa Rica. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That is so wild. Have you brought your family there? I haven't. No. Jared got to come when we were dating, and he met my parents on that trip at Christmas time. And that was when he asked my parents if he could marry me. Big trip. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, it was a big trip. And then my parents moved away from Costa Rica the next year. So we haven't been back. Okay. But 
Wow. Are they missionaries still? Uh, they are back in the States now. So they moved from Costa Rica to Colombia for about four years. And then they kind of, an opportunity came up to retire and come back to the U.S. And so I think it was just the right time for them. And they're now in Mechanicsville, so they're really close by. And they're still involved in ministry in the Spanish-speaking community here in Richmond. So it's it's a good thing to see. It's exciting that they're... I don't know, their kind of missions outlook hasn't really changed, even though they're in the U.S. now. So It's funny asking you some of the questions I <laughs> know as if I <laughs> don't know. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm going to keep doing well, it. That's okay. We need it, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, well, I guess, gosh, there's so many places to jump in, but let's just <laughs> describe your parents first. Uh, let's tell a little bit more about them. What exactly did they do? there did they have like a normal job and then they would just be inviting people into their home like did you have did they have like um a storefront or were they directly in a church like what did it look like yeah so in my younger years my dad was primarily involved in what I would call like pastor training and they were Baptist missionaries with the International Mission Board and so very much Uh, evangelism-oriented, working with local pastors and leaders. And so that was mostly what my dad did, was um, just supporting the local pastors and helping them have education that they needed. So my parents both taught in seminary in Costa Rica for several years. Then in my elementary years, my mom also started working. Um, She taught my at my school and so she was actually my fifth grade teacher like my every subject teacher in the fifth grade wow and she spent a few years doing that teaching at our private christian school and then in my middle and high school years my parents had two distinct roles as missionaries and so my mom worked with people who would come to costa rica to learn Spanish. So people who were planning to be missionaries in a Spanish-speaking country would come and spend a year in Costa Rica learning the language because the Spanish in Costa Rica is pretty pretty clear, easy to understand. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a lot of strong accents one way or another. And so it's kind of a neutral language for people to learn. And then they go on to their to their country where they're going to serve and they're able to just use their Spanish that they've learned. So my mom was kind of a liaison for those people, helping them find housing and working with them, giving them support in their language learning journey. And then in those years, my dad was mainly involved in uh, receiving missions teams who would come to basically do evangelism projects. Mm -hmm. So they would go out into the country and work with a local church do a lot of prayer walking over an area, and then distribute the Gospel of John. And okay. so the the hope was that God's word would would go forth and that it wouldn't return void and that God would use those um, moments and just conversations that they'd had. And they definitely had instances where people would say, yes, tell me, what must I do to be saved? Wow. Um, so it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, I think it was it was good work for them to be a part of. And I'm grateful to have grown up under under those circumstances and witnessing those things that they did. So, is there any other like history of missionaries in your family that you know about, or are they the first? Um, yeah, I don't 
think that there are. Both of my parents were involved in church all growing up, and in kind of Baptist churches, missions is a big focus, and so they both heard at a young age from missionaries. My dad was a military kid, and so anywhere that his family was stationed, his parents got connected with local missionaries in the area Mm. and were supporting those missionaries financially. So it was a big part of his growing up to have those interactions. And they had both gone to serve as missionaries independently before they met each other and got married. So they were in Paraguay at different times, but heard about each other. And that was part of how they connected. So, yeah. Do you know what they heard about each other? That's so... So my dad was there first, and then he came back to the States and came to Richmond. And then my mom moved to Paraguay, and she just heard, like, oh, there's this great, funny guy, Mark Grumbles. You should you should talk to him when you guys mm. get back. I think he's from Virginia, too. So they connected at a missions conference here in Virginia. That's really cute. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know I should talk about you as a kid, but I'm still on your missions thing. Um, oh, fine. Did I was just thinking, like, do you ever want to travel? Because I don't think I've ever heard of U.S. side, like, going on a trip. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing because I have traveled a lot within Central America, but I haven't traveled much outside of that. And mm-hmm. so, I don't know, at some point in college or in my adulthood, I had the realization that I've never been in a country where I didn't speak the language because mm-hmm. even though I grew up overseas, I've always spoken Spanish and I've been in the States where we speak English. And so I really don't know that feeling of being an outsider as far as just like a complete outsider in a culture. So I would like to travel. It just hasn't been a priority in our in our marriage and in our family life. So we'll see what happens. Would you go to Spanish speaking countries? Like first, would that be your first choice? I don't know. There's just so much to know and explore. And I also, in a lot of ways, I would like to revisit some of the places that I went as a kid. So during our time in El Salvador, we frequently would go to Guatemala and we visited Mayan ruins and all these really cool places. But I just didn't have a lot of appreciation for it as a Mm -hmm. kid. I was just hot. And why are you dragging us up this (laughs) weird pyramid type thing? And now I think about it and it's just amazing. I look. Mm-hmm. I would love to go and see. So I think I'd like to go back. And I definitely do want to take the kids to Costa Rica at some point. So. Yeah. Well, I have never been to any of those places. What are some like strong images that you think of or things that kind of enc- uh, encapsulate those places? So I think one thing, at least in Costa Rica, was that we lived in the city. So I've always lived in major cities. We lived in the capital, San Jose. We lived in Heredia, which is a a nearby city still in the Central Valley in Costa Rica. So we still had very much a city life. And so I wasn't seeing monkeys swinging through the trees every day. We did hear the parrots fly over every day at like five o'clock because these little, I guess they're more like parakeets or parrots would just come by and they would always come by the same time of day and just be very noisy and squawky. Was there like markets or? Yeah, there's lots of open air markets for especially like a farmer's market for fruits and vegetables. So lots of access to tropical fruits and delicious things. You go to a restaurant and on the menu next to your sodas, you have your natural drinks. So all Mm. sorts of just tropical fruits that are mixed in water, or you can even have them mixed in milk like a smoothie. Mm. There are lots of bakeries. So fresh bread is definitely a part of the culture. 
and afternoon coffee where you enjoy your fresh baked pastries <laughs> is a thing. And my parents still indulge in afternoon coffee and a nap. But yeah, I think just people are friendly, respectful. Like you walk down the street and you greet somebody. Um, lots of people walking. So I would say kind of a pedestrians and also public transportation is big, lots of buses to get in and out of the city. They even had restrictions um, by the end of my time. They had restrictions on which license plates could go into the city on different Mm. times, like different days of the week, which is an interesting thing. They were trying to limit the congestion in the downtown area. So yeah, based on the number that your license plate ended in, you couldn't be in the city on certain days of the week. What was it like to worship there? So we were always involved in a local church and... In El Salvador, we were involved in a pretty big church that was well-established and had a building. It had a um, had pews. Like, it, it looked pretty much like you would imagine a standard American sanctuary would be. But we were also involved with lots of work in rural places where they definitely didn't have those things. So people would meet in houses. People would meet in under a tree, in a field. We went pretty regularly to a church that in our family, we just called the church with no walls because it had a, it had a roof. It had, I guess, some kind of column metal supports to hold up the roof, but there were no walls and there wasn't necessarily any intention to ever build the walls. I don't think it was just what they were able to have. So lots of, yeah, just people seeking the Lord and doing the best with what they had, which was frequently very little. Yeah, we had different different experiences. One that stands out as far as kind of ministry and Bible study and being with people was for a period of time. It was probably like six months. I don't really know. But in El Salvador, we would go out to have a Bible study at this woman's house, and her name was Conchita. And we had to drive at least an hour. In my memory, it was like two hours to get out there, but (laughs) I don't know if that's true. But one of the distinctive things was we basically had to ford a creek or a river to get to her house. And so this river creek was at the bottom of a, like a valley up onto this hill where her house was. And at least one time we went and we couldn't get across. It just was not going to be a good idea. So we had to just not go that week because yeah. we couldn't get to her house. So lots of doing things like that, <laughs> um, going out to places and showing maybe a film and then driving everybody home afterwards because the buses had stopped running. So in El Salvador, we had a pickup truck. It was an Isuzu and it was a double cab. Is that what they're called? Yeah, My whole yeah. family of five could fit in the inside of the pickup truck. Mm-hmm. But then we would take like 30 people home who were just well, riding in boy. the back and we would go around and, and take no. everybody home. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we ever transported monkeys, but I would have been really <laughs> excited to have done so. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, so back to church. Mm-hmm. Um So that was my church experience in El Salvador. When we moved back to Costa Rica in middle and high school, we were part of a church plant that was fairly new in the city and reaching out mostly to kind of college age and early career uh, folks. And we met in a movie theater for several years. And then we ended up buying a independent movie theater 
and kind of refurbishing it. Mm -hmm. And then they made a football cinco court in it, which is like indoor soccer. I don't know what it's called in English. I think you just call it indoor soccer. So we had like a court next to the little hallway, basically, where we would set up chairs on Sunday and have our (laughs) church service. So that was a cool opportunity. They were just looking for, A, ways to pay the bills Mm -hmm. by running this little soccer court, but also get people in the door and know about our church. So, What was it called? The church? Mm -hmm. It was called Iglesia del Este, which is just Church of the East, because we were on the east side of the city. Oh. So... (laughs) Yeah, not super fancy name, but (laughs) sounds fancy when you say it. A good group to be a part of. So, all right. So, when you were young, what was it like to be the little sister? I was the little sister with two big brothers, and they, as a as a rule, if we encompassed our whole childhoods, did not get along super well. And so, I spent a lot of time as peacemaker between them. So, even like I was saying, we had that truck for the years in El Salvador. I sat in the middle seat because <laughs> I was the kind of divider between the two brothers. But they were great. I mean, we we all got along pretty well. Um, were they just different personalities? Yeah. yeah. My, my oldest brother has always been a little bit more rebellious, a little bit more impulsive. And my middle brother is much more serious, thinks everything through, studious. And so... They just had different priorities. My oldest brother is much more friendly and gregarious. My middle brother would have said at definitely at points throughout his teenage years that he had social anxiety disorder. And so, yeah, they just were different people. (laughs) And I I was always trying to mediate and be the peacemaker. And the third way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I would get frustrated and like, why can't you guys just work it out? But you would sing that to them. No, <laughs> probably not. But only in the movies. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you're a peacemaker and what else? Uh, as a kid, I was definitely a reader. I loved reading. And I got, I think I got labeled pretty early as a reader and a smart kid. And those were kind of identities that I just took up and was like, yep, okay, this is who I am. Like, I'm going to get the good grades. Mm-hmm. I'm going to spend my time reading and I'm going to download the list of the hundred books you should read before high school and I'm going to read them all. And so I was very much a a rules follower, just trying to do what I thought were the right things and Mm -hmm. what I was supposed to do. But I also have always had a creative streak, not so much creative like coming up with ideas, but creative as wanting to do things with my hands, wanting to create things. So I've been sewing since I was in elementary school. I did a lot of other crafty things, crochet and knit and cross stitch and embroidery and latch hook and basically anything I could find that my mom, projects my mom had abandoned that I picked up and I was like, yep, I'm going to learn how to do this now. Um, What's something you were the most proud of? Ooh, the most proud of? Uh... Maybe a quilt. Like I, I made a couple of quilts in middle school and those felt like big things, right? That I could, I had a, one hanging up on my wall. And so it was like something that people could see that I was proud of. I sewed a lot of weird clothes in middle school. Middle school, that's pretty young so for a quilt. I was proud of those at the time, my weird clothes. But looking back, I'm <laughs> like, wow, this was really strange. You made these pants out of upholstery material and put tassels around the bottom. (laughs) Like, just having fun, though. Well, then you could 
swish a little when you walked, right? There I mean. we go. Yeah. <laughs> so how much Spanish did you speak? Was it 50-50? Um, no, it probably wasn't 50-50. So we always spoke English in our home. And I always went to English-speaking school. And so kind of the majority of my social life even was in English because that was my the main shared language with my classmates. And I think I was more confident in speaking Spanish in my elementary years, but something, I don't know. I don't know when it changed. Maybe that first grade year when we first moved to El Salvador, I'd spent a year in the States in kindergarten, hadn't really spoken Spanish the whole year. And then I got to El Salvador and they had some different vocabulary, just, you know, slang of the region mm-hmm. that I didn't know. And so I would use a word, like I distinctly remember in Sunday school, they were giving out candy or something and I called it confites. And they were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we don't say that. And I learned that in El Salvador, you say dulces, which just means sweets. Mm-hmm. And so I started to kind of restrain myself and not speak a lot and not really make friends uh, in my church community necessarily. And just, I think it was generally a time where I turned more inward and more shy and kind of lost some of that boldness of my youth. And so I honestly don't think my Spanish has ever been as good as it was before those years Mm -hmm. because I just didn't take opportunities to practice and to use it. And I was always just a little bit uh, hesitant and afraid. About how, how old were you, you said? So I would have been like six and okay. seven. Yeah. That's amazing, though. It's fun to think about a child that small. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, by the time I was in high school, I was in a school that was a college prep school. So preparing people to come to the United States for college. But um, you could also still complete the requirements to get a Costa Rican diploma as well. And so I was in Spanish class with my peers. And it was the equivalent of, you know, your English class in high school. So Mm -hmm. we were reading Hamlet and we were reading 100 Years of Solitude. I was good enough to like be a part and be up to par with sort of the nationals in my class, but I didn't have the confidence. And now, especially in adulthood, I'm so far removed from using my Spanish that I'm pretty shy about it. (laughs) So if you ever get angry, you're not going to say something in Spanish or would you? Probably not. I think the time when Spanish comes out is actually talking to animals. Like okay. when I'm talking to somebody's dog for some reason, sometimes Spanish comes out. And the same talking to babies. Like, Aww. I don't know. It's just like it, it comes to mind. I'm like, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll use these words instead of the English words. Wow, that is really <laughs> sweet. Uh, just to pull on it a little bit more, you said that you sort of isolated. So then who were you close to um, growing up? Did you have a group of friends that you knew that you weren't going to keep very long because you knew you were moving? What was that like? Yeah, that is one of the things is that we always knew that a change would be on the horizon. So I always knew we're going to spend four years here and then I'm going to spend a year in the States. And by the time I come back, you know, this friend maybe won't be here. And especially the year, the early years that we were back in Costa Rica, my middle school years, I went to the school that was associated with that language school. And so everybody who was there was only planning to be there for a year Mm -hmm. for the most part. And so there was an awareness of like these relationships are, uh, are temporary, but I did generally have one or two close friends all along. I had a, a couple of best friends in elementary school who 
where my friends those four years I was in El Salvador then in middle school I had a close friend for a year uh, who I stayed in pretty good touch with as pen pals after that and honestly probably my closest friend all growing up was my middle brother Drew okay and we were like I said he was more serious and studious and so we were kind of like-minded in those regards and yeah we were just buddies and I really respected him so I wanted to do what he was doing and be like him would you guys talk about books we did talk about books and I think we also had kind of I don't know that a spiritual awakening is it sounds a little bit more exciting or like (laughs) I don't know bigger than it was but I think we kind of came into a personal faith together at the same time we were involved in a youth group that was mainly for other missionary kids and for English speakers in the city. It was not a it was not associated with a church. It was like a parachurch organization. But we got involved with that pretty much together and he became a student leader. Then he went to college and then I stayed on at the youth group and also became a student leader. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was just kind of like finding our own feet of faith. And so we um, we did read books like we he read C.S. Lewis, and then I started reading C.S. Lewis, or he read other things for his school. He was on, he did an online Christian school for a couple of years. And so whatever stuff that he was learning about, I wanted to learn about too and follow Mm -hmm. along. But yeah. So in your family group, like the school part is so interesting to me. And you said your mom taught for a little while. Like what should I be imagining? Like a really little classroom? Should I imagine like you running out to the playground afterwards or was it just really small yeah so my elementary school in El Salvador which is where my mom taught with us was pretty small I would say maybe 60 students if I can even calculate that that was it we met in a house that the director lived in and so different rooms were different classrooms and it was almost more of like a one-room schoolhouse type thing. So first through third grade, we're in a group together, and fourth through sixth grade, we're in a group together. And I think my brother, my oldest brother, ended up being in the oldest class. I think it only went to eighth grade at the time that we were there. So I had maybe five classmates. And so my mom being my teacher wasn't super weird because it's almost like being in a homeschool co-op or something where you would have a pretty small group of peers. And then even in my international school that I went to in high school, I graduated in one of the biggest classes in the recent years, and I think there were 19 of us. So it was still pretty small. And that school was more like a school. Like We had different classrooms where a teacher was in each class, and you'd rotate between the classes. We had a big gym. We had a soccer field. We had a cafeteria, a library, and those were all distinct buildings. So it was more Mm school-like than than the house that we were in in elementary school. But my elementary school, and I I think I feel differently about it than my brothers do, and maybe it's because I was a girl, but I loved so many of the things that we did. We had like a rug time in the mornings, which was almost like a chapel type thing where we would do devotionals and sing songs and memorize the scriptures. We had really fun seasonal traditions. We put on plays at Christmas time. We would make these huge murals on the walls that um, they would put up paper and so we'd just paint these snowy scenes because mm-hmm. we weren't getting snow in El Salvador absolutely <laughs> not it's very hot there um, but I don't know just just things to make it special we always made Christmas ornaments we did uh, 
what's it called? It's like the plastic giant cross stitch type stuff. Mm. Plastic canvas. I think that's what they call it. Okay. So you use yarn and a big yarn needle. And Mm -hmm. we always made Christmas ornaments from that. We would make like Mother's Day gifts and Father's Day things. So it was really just a sweet school where Mm -hmm. they were trying to provide these opportunities for us. And I loved it. Like, it was great. (laughs) So what is your conscious identity? Do you say I'm Costa Rican? No. Like, how... Like American were you? I have a hard time saying that because I don't know. I was I was always involved in kind of American culture in the in Costa Rica, right? Mm-hmm. Like we were pretty involved in the missionary community. Um, especially my like I said, my middle and high school years were more oriented towards the missionary community and we lived in a part of the city where that was a thing because of the language school. So there's a term that gets used now as a preparatory term to missionary kid and it's also more general so it could apply to military kids and others too but they call it a tck so it's a third culture kid so the idea is that you have your parent culture which for me would be the u.s and then you have the culture that you live in that's the second culture which for me would be costa rica or el salvador but you are not really a part of either one right you're this like ambiguous middle and so you are the third culture kid and I definitely felt that growing up and I really embraced that title because I I wanted to be special right I was Mm -hmm. like oh I am different I'm distinct I don't quite fit in anywhere (laughs) and so I kind of clung to that but now I don't know maybe it's just more awareness as an adult that I have the realization that most people would qualify as that, right? Like there's mm-hmm. so many pockets of culture in the United States or people's experiences. Because the things that I would point to would be like, oh, I don't know anything about TV from the 90s. But then I run into somebody whose parents didn't let them watch TV in the 90s. Sure, yeah. And so it's like, oh, okay, maybe I'm not that special. <laughs> <laughs> Probably we're all just individuals and different and I don't have to like – walk around parading under this label that I'm a super special person. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. When you went back to the States, was there something that you're like, oh, yes, finally I could do this, but then you missed something back from Central America? Um, I think foods are like one of the biggest things that we looked forward to in the States. We loved Dr. Pepper, which was not readily available. Even stuff like peanut butter wasn't super common. Oreos and goldfish and SpaghettiOs and Yoohoo, like very strange <laughs> things that we got super excited to eat in the U.S. But then I would miss the fresh fruits and other foods in Costa Rica because I love fruit and I loved going to the farmer's market with my dad and just picking stuff out and getting to enjoy it. So I definitely miss that. And I would miss the weather because where we were in Costa Rica, it's pretty temperate. It's probably the 70s most of the time Mm -hmm. and they have a rainy season and a dry season and so the rainy season it rains almost every day in the afternoon so you'll have a bright clear morning and then you'll have a rainy afternoon but like clockwork you're saying pretty much yeah so interesting it's really i mean you just get used to it and it's Mm kind of comforting that like afternoon rain coming in um so I would miss stuff like that, even though, on the other hand, I would be excited to be in the States and maybe get to enjoy some snow. But where we were in Southeast Virginia, we maybe got one or two snows every mm-hmm. year. So 
that wasn't very much of the reward that I wanted it to be. <laughs> yeah. So when you came back, were you coming to family or? Yeah. So we would come back to Franklin, Virginia, which is where my grandparents still live and where my mom grew up. And it was a nice small town. So I actually spent, I did kindergarten, sixth grade and 11th grade in public school in Franklin. And pretty much had the same classmates like I came back to be with the same group of people which was nice because I knew them but on the other hand it was not nice because they had had years of experiences together that I hadn't been a part of and so I was pretty much an outsider in the years that I was here and in that that 11th grade year my best friends were my art teacher and my science teacher because I just felt more connected to the adults and I was just like oh you'll talk to me and have a conversation and not be preoccupied with the nonsense that teenagers were worried about were you relieved to go back for your final year I was yeah I was excited to go back but kind of the same it felt I think I was more aware at that point that my friends who I had left behind had had a year's worth of experiences that I wasn't a part of Mm -hmm. um and like I said my my class and my group of friends was pretty small. So there were like 15 of us or 18 in class. And then probably five of those were my very close friends. And just some weird stuff happened while I was gone. Like one of my best friends had been dating a boy. And then when I came back, the other girl was dating the boy. <laughs> and I was like, how did this happen? <laughs> um, so it it was a little bit weird, but I don't know. I think there was a lot of A lot of good, and we were all involved in that youth group that I was talking about. So I feel like that kind of covered over a lot of the awkwardness that I knew that we were like-minded in general. We're all good kids, like trying to do the right thing. So it wasn't so much an outsider in like people, I don't know, trying to get out of the house and like go drinking or that wasn't really my friend group. Mm -hmm. Um, But just kind of the, I guess, interpersonal relationship that I felt a little bit out of the loop when we went back but so how did you um think about your future was it exciting to think about making your own choices after high school did you even think about moving away from your parents or were you just kind of thinking I'm staying connected till I'm married or how did you think about it hmm I think I always knew I would go to school I mean go to college because that was a big push of my parents was that we were all going to go to college and and because I was smart that I had always gotten good grades like that was a goal that I was working towards was like I'm going to get into the best school that I can get into and I'm gonna go out there and prove myself but I think it I don't know I didn't I, I don't know if I thought about it that much leaving my family it was just the thing that I was going to do next mm-hmm. that my brothers had both come um, to school my oldest brother went to school in Kentucky. My middle brother went to Virginia Tech. And then I was going to come too. And ultimately, at the end, I was deciding between William and Mary and Virginia Tech to be with my brother. And I chose William and Mary in part, I think, because I wanted some independence. And I was like, no, I'm going to do my own thing. Um, I guess I always had confidence. Like, I wasn't anxious to be on my own. But I still stayed connected to my parents. Like, we had a weekly phone call the whole time I was in college and I think the year after too probably until I got married and then I probably wasn't as regular calling my parents as I should have been (laughs) but 
So yeah. how did you choose your major? So I ended up being an English major and I pretty much was set on that. I've like I said, I've grown up reading, so it just seemed like a natural thing. Oh, I can go to college and just keep reading good books. Okay, I'll do that. I briefly thought about doing occupational therapy or something like that as a career. So I tried out some science classes and um, did kinesiology, which would have been the major if I wanted to get into OT from what William and Mary offered. But I don't know, it just didn't seem like a fit. And so I did English and then I figured, what am I going to do with English except teach? <laughs> so I pretty much right away from starting my English major was looking at the track to get a teaching degree as well. So I planned my classes around that and getting certified for teaching. So did you like William and Mary? That's how I ended up. I did. It was good. I think I think like anywhere that you could end up for school or in any city that you move to, it just depends on where you get plugged in and who you get connected to. So I was part of the Baptist Collegiate Ministries there and it was pretty heavily involved in like a weekly small group and then started leading them my last few years. And then they had a Sunday night kind of big group gathering that I went to. And then I was also part of a local church in Williamsburg that was really, it was a great church. Like I got to see so many wonderful examples of families and what it would look like, even homeschool families. Um, There was like a pretty large family. I think they had eight kids and the mom homeschooled and the dad was a professor at William & Mary. Mm. There was another family that adopted two kids um, from China. And so just these like really beautiful, I don't know, inspiring things for me to see as an 18 and 19 and 20 year old and kind of have a vision for what adulthood and life could look like. I do, I wish I'd gotten more involved in my local church and maybe balanced a little bit with my Baptist Collegiate Ministries experience. Um, So that's in retrospect, though. At the time, I had a great time. (laughs) (laughs) Were you close to your parents looking back? Do you look back and say, like, we were really close or we were just like good friends? I think we were close, Um, especially since I was the youngest those last two years. It was just me at home with them. And I think even at the time, my oldest brother went through kind of a hard season and so seeing my parents kind of struggle through something and have to really devote themselves to prayer in a situation that they didn't have a lot of control over was really impactful to me and I think that that did bring us closer together to kind of yeah just to see them be more vulnerable in that and not just well on their kind of like official where the missionaries but actually you know what does it look like to trust in God in this situation But yeah, I would say I was always pretty close to them. I always, in general, didn't have a lot of conflict with my parents. Tried to be compliant and obedient. But I'm sure there was some attitude behind the scenes, you know. In my mind, (laughs) I'm sure I had all the feelings, even though I like to think that A furious journal. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I was a journaler. Oh, really? Then, and a scrapbooker. I did a ton of scrapbooking in middle and high school, so. (laughs) Okay, well, that's a fun question. What were your hobbies? Um, so I, like I said, a lot of crafty things. So scrapbooking and sewing were probably the primary things. I also really liked photography. So I got a digital camera pretty early in the era of digital cameras becoming a thing. 
Were you a, like someone who would hop on a bike or do any kind of sports? No, we didn't have a lot of freedom to like hop on a bike when I was a kid. So in the city, we our houses were kind of like townhomes in the sense that you like share walls, like all the houses are just connected to each other. And so there's not a lot of yard space. You don't have like a yard that goes around your house and everything is barred in to protect against robbery. And so I didn't go out a lot by myself to like a public space when I was really little. Then in high school, I did have more freedom and would ride the bus or take a taxi by myself. But yeah. What about parks? We had parks. I don't remember going to the park to play necessarily. Pools? No, no pools. No pools. Yeah, I'd say okay. pools are pretty rare. More at the beach. Okay. Um, I did play a few sports in middle school. I had a brief attempt at gymnastics, <laughs> but middle school is the wrong time to start gymnastics <laughs> oh, yes. when you are a tall girl like I am. And my upper body strength could not compete with my long floppy legs. So <laughs> gymnastics, where did it all go wrong? Annie? Gymnastics the lasted <laughs> like six months. Exactly. Then I played volleyball in high school. And when I asked my parents if they had any stories for me as a kid, my mom was like, you must tell the volleyball story. Okay. So here's the volleyball story. <laughs> I went to this new school, the international school in ninth grade. And we had kind of an opening meeting or ceremony where they were explaining some things. And afterwards, the PE teacher, who was also the sports coach, because that's how the school worked, like caught me. And she was like, hey, volleyball is our first sport this year. You need to join the volleyball team. And I was like, oh, well, I don't really know how to play volleyball. I've never <laughs> played volleyball before, except in like PE class. And I've never really played any sport before. I'm not super coordinated. And she was like, oh, don't worry. You'll be great. You're tall. I'll teach you. And so I implicitly trusted this lady. And the way that my high school, the team sports worked was that we had practice during the school day. So it was a class that you signed up for. So you were either on the team or the opposite time slot. You were in regular girls PE. So I signed up to be in volleyball, team, sport, and then my alternate pick was my elective. And so I signed up for theater design, like costume design, and I was super excited about that class because it involved sewing, and I was mm -hmm. like, this will be really fun. Well, I show up to the first class for team volleyball, and there were an unprecedented number of girls who signed <laughs> up for team volleyball, and she was like, oh, well, we have to run tryouts this year because there's too many of you. Oh, no. And so I had to endure the difficulty of a week's <laughs> worth of volleyball tryouts when I knew nothing and I was terrible and just embarrassed and I went home every day from school and cried to my parents that I had to even do all of this and of course I didn't make the team and then after that it may have even been two weeks it was at least a week because I didn't make the team I had to switch over to girls PE and I lost mm. my other elective and so I had Aww. to join sound design or something and Anyways, you at clearly the time, remembered that or something. Yeah. <laughs> as a ninth grader, it was a very difficult experience <laughs> to have trusted this woman who said she would teach me and I could be on the team. And then it was yeah. like, no, you you are no good. You are not on this team. But over the course of PE that year, we pretty regularly played volleyball. And then by the time that my 10th grade year started, I was decent enough to make the team. And then... I was back in the States for 11th grade, and I made the varsity team that year. Wow. So, which in small town, Franklin, 
there also wasn't much competition. So I was never like, I didn't start in my US team, but I would chase after the balls and fill up people's water bottles. And I was like, if I'm going to be here, I may as well make the experience more pleasant for everyone else. So that was mostly my sports experience. And then my senior year, the same coach, because she coached all three sports that my school had, convinced me to join the basketball team. Okay. Which, if you know me at all, I am not an imposing I'm tall, but I'm not aggressive at all. Mm -hmm. And so it was very hard for me because I just didn't like being in people's space. And it's like, oh, you're going to steal the ball? Here you go. Take it. (laughs) So, yeah, I wasn't very good at basketball either. So I'm not super athletic. (laughs) But hey, volleyball, I'm impressed. Where did you like to play? Were you like serving or being No, I mostly played at the front. Yeah, just hitting. But I wasn't great. No. No. But I had fun. I really did like it. The fact that in volleyball, there's a net between you and the opponent, that was the distance that I needed to have mm-hmm. any sort of aggression in the way that I hit and like tried to attack in any way. Yeah. Because anything up close and personal with somebody, I am just way too submissive. And I'm just like, oh, here, your turn. Not yeah. mine anymore. I don't know. <laughs> so in your mind, though, if you could play any sport, what would you play? I think as far as team sports go, I would probably stick with volleyball. Mm-hmm. I would like to be a better volleyball player than I was and to have, yeah, actually gotten good at it. I also would have liked to have been a better swimmer. My my middle brother swam, and he was a competitive swimmer in high school. So I definitely saw that happening, and I didn't ever want to give it as much time as he gave to it. But I think swimming is just such great exercise. and just a good life skill. Did your parents ever have you work or want you to work at a young age? What was your first job? I didn't have a ton of opportunities to work in Costa Rica, but I did a lot of babysitting in those years. So I would babysit for my teacher's kids and for other missionary families. And then my 11th grade year, when I was here in the States, I worked at the library. And that was a great job. I was just, they call it a library page. But you shelf books, you work the front desk, and you make calls when people's holds come in. How did you get that job? My grandma's friend, yeah, I think they were just a, one of my grandma's friends worked for the library system. And so I think she knew, maybe my grandma told me that they were hiring for a page at the, at the Franklin Library, or I'm not sure, maybe we inquired, maybe I asked. But it was a great fit. It was just, you know, a few hours a week and... I had a lot of fun. And actually, a random fact is that my husband, Jared, also worked as a library page at in Colonial Heights when he was, wow. I think it was when he was in college, when he was at um, Richard Bland. So it was just a funny thing mm-hmm. when I was like, oh, we've both worked at the library. Aren't we fun? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. And then I'm trying to think if I had any other jobs in high school. Babysitting. And then in college, I was kind of a janitor for the BCM house, so the house that we met in. I worked for a year and a half as the person who cleaned it. And my junior year, I did that in exchange to actually live in the apartment that was in the house. So that was a pretty great setup. So I had a like part-time job and basically earned my room with that. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was just going to ask you. Was there ever something that you were saving for or that, how did you think about money that you had to save it up to go to school or car or anything like that? Yeah, I... I always save money. So my parents were were big on teaching us in general to save and 
we always had those three categories of giving to the church and then saving and spending. So I was very much somebody who would save up my money for a big purchase. So I bought my first computer. I bought a nice digital camera. And then I did buy my car in college. So that's a lot of babysitting, Annie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think the car, I also, I got some inheritance from my grandfather. Okay. And that contributed towards the car. So it wasn't all babysitting. But um, but yeah, I think the car was the biggest purchase. And then in my sophomore year of college, I bought my sewing machine, which at oh. the time was a very big purchase for me. So I left behind my mother's very kindly loaned to me machine and bought my own that felt fancy and nice. So I still use that same machine. What? So it was a good investment. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. Should I be imagining like circled magazines of, I wish I could have this and like you pinned it on the wall or yeah. something. <laughs> Basically. That's fun. It was fun. Okay. Um, so through college, was there any professors that stood out to you or just people that shaped you that you can think of during that time as you're getting older? Yeah, I, I don't know if in college, in middle school, a teacher at the school that I was at who was not one of my teachers, she taught elementary and I was in middle school, but she basically discipled me through for a couple of years. So that was a really formative relationship for me. You know, we would meet weekly at a coffee shop and it was just a fun, a fun experience to have. But we would go through books of the Bible together and she had taken time, right, to like study and make notes and have a conversation with me. Mm. And it was just meaningful for me to see too a a young single girl out serving on the mission field on her own and doing, you know, quote unquote, a big thing for God. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a, a shaping relationship. And then my youth group leader through high school and his family. And then in college, probably my campus minister um, and just his He's just a good guy. I don't know. Has a has a heart for students and and especially hurting students and kind of hurting. Yeah, like yeah. William and Mary has a reputation for being a challenging school, and also that I think there was that effect where people go from a high school environment where they're at the top of their class and they're used to being like the smart kid. And then you go to a college where everybody is like that. Mm. And so there's a little bit of a harsh reality where it's like, well, we can't all be at the top anymore. And maybe I'm not as um, prepared for studies as I ought to be. Um, But yeah, there were a lot of issues in my years there with just people having really difficulties and depression and things. And so my campus minister was just, I don't know, he always had a heart to just reach out to students and keep connecting with people. He wouldn't give up on somebody and reaching out and calling and texting. And so. So as you move through this time, did you find yourself really loving English? Was it like confirmed to you as you went through it? Like, yes, this is what I want to do by the end of it because you weren't so sure in the beginning. Did you go out of college with the passion? Kind of like you said, do something for Jesus, but I'm going to do something <laughs> in the school system or. Yeah. And I'm not even, I don't know if it was even for English, right? Like I loved reading and I loved literature, but I don't think I really had a vision for literature itself being the agent that would change people. Mm-hmm. I just thought being an English teacher would be my platform to be out and involved in people's lives. And then I would really change change people. 
and I actually applied. I'm fuzzy on the details whether it was bet- whether it was right after my senior year and I would have taken off for my master's to for secondary ed or whether I did it after my I got my teaching degree. But regardless, I applied for Teach for America because that was the way that I thought that I could have this really big impact mm-hmm. was go into some urban environment and love the really tough kids and have this huge like you know movie type experience where I would be the teacher who changed their life mm-hmm. and I didn't get accepted into the program and looking back I'm so grateful for that because I think I would have gotten eaten alive yeah. like either by the students or by the philosophies of Teach for America I don't I don't know I had a, I had grand visions I was going to go to Nashville I knew a church plant there I was going to be involved in the church plant but God had better things in mind for me and I actually didn't even end up teaching English in my teaching career. I had a hard time finding openings for English and they were all getting taken by, I think there was, there were people coming into the teaching field from outside. And so people with just more experience than somebody straight out of college. Mm-hmm. But I had taken the praxis test to be able to teach Spanish as well. So even though I had no training in teaching Spanish, I was technically qualified for it and so I applied for Spanish positions and that's when I got my job in Chesterfield to teach high school and middle school Spanish and so that's what launched my teaching career was to teach Spanish and then I had a chance to switch out and hold on just for people who live out there what school did you teach at oh I taught at Matoica and so my first year I taught part-time at Matoica Middle and part-time at Matoica High School and that's probably also the reason that I got that job is because it was this weird half and half position that nobody really wanted. But mm. I was like, I'll do it. <laughs> and I taught all Spanish one. And so I taught the same thing five times over. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it got very confusing because I couldn't remember, like, did I say this to this class or not? I've said it four times no already. Doubt. So my first year was not very fun. But after that, I moved full time to the high school And my principal gave me the chance. There were English openings. And he was like, hey, do you want to move over and teach English instead? And that sounded terrible to me because it would be like repeating my first year of teaching all over again. And so I was just like, no, I'll stick with Spanish. Maybe I'll find my groove a little bit better. And so that's what I did, stuck with Spanish. And then where did you go to church? When I came to Chesterfield? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I started coming to Remnant pretty shortly Yeah, I came even before, as soon as I moved to the area. I had known about Remnant because Pastor Brian had come and spoken at my BCM's retreat my freshman year. And then my sophomore year, Jared, who's now my husband, came and spoke at the same retreat. And so I had met him and I knew that they were both from Remnant. And so I had that in the back of my mind, like Remnant Church, that's a church in Richmond. Sounds good. And so I was planning to go there and then... Jared actually reached out to me on Facebook and also invited me to come when he knew that I was moving to Colonial Heights in Chesterfield. I have not heard this story. Why would he reach out to you? What did he reach out to everyone? What I think he just saw like I I made some post that was like, hey, I'm moving to Chesterfield. Uh I got a job at Matoica. And he had become friends with, you know, my whole group that was at that uh, retreat. And so everybody was friends on Facebook. And so he had seen people graduate and a couple of people got married within the group. And so he, yeah, he just invited me. And 
I think he would say at the time that he was like aware that there could be a possibility of a relationship somewhere. I was not thinking that at all. I was just like, oh yeah, this guy reached out. He remembers who I am and he wants me to be involved in a church. And so I was like, oh, I'll try out Remnant. And then I came and- Did you come alone? I did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I came alone. And we were going out to lunch. He invited me to go to lunch that first Sunday that I came and we were just going to catch up. But then somehow it happened that the heavens parted over the course. No, (laughs) over the course of that, like 15 minutes after the church meeting Mm -hmm. that he also connected with another friend who was trying to reach out to a guy who was sort of like tangentially involved in the church. And so Jared came back to me and he was like, hey, do you mind if we go out to lunch with these other two guys, too? (laughs) So the four of us went out to lunch and it was me with these three guys that I didn't really know. And they just talked about stuff that they liked. And I sat there and I listened and I nodded my head, which if you know me, I don't mind doing that. Like I, I'm pretty much an eavesdropper most of the time where I just, I like, I like learning. I like being around a conversation. So it didn't really bother me. And then we went to what was at the time Globe Hopper after lunch and we talked for a couple of hours and the same I didn't think anything of it I didn't know it was a date I just thought we were two people talking and catching up but Jared was secretly drilling me about important <laughs> topics like okay would I ever be willing to homeschool or how did I feel about Santa Claus and how did you feel I guess I gave the right answers <laughs> um at the time I wasn't super excited about homeschooling but I wasn't going to write it off as yeah. a possibility. I did not want to tell my kids and like introduce the tradition of Santa Claus, which he was all about the same. So it was funny. And then Sunday nights was when I had my regular weekly phone call with my parents. Mm-hmm. So I went home and I told them like, oh, yeah, I spent all afternoon with that guy, Jared, who, you know, had come to speak at the BCM retreat. And he was really nice. And we just talked. And they were like, oh, really? You just <laughs> talked all afternoon. And I was like, yeah, isn't that nice? We had a real conversation. And so I, I mean, it was like weeks of us texting and connecting before it clicked that he was interested in me because I was just naive and Mm -hmm. didn't know. I had not dated at all. And so I didn't know how things went. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. So when did he officially say like, hey, let's make this a thing? Maybe a couple of weeks later or a month into me going to church. I couldn't go to his community group at first because I had some scheduling conflicts with my work training. So I ended up at the Piles community group for several months. And so I think that was good because it let me get connected to people in the church outside of him and mm-hmm. the people that he, well, he was knew most people in the church at the time. But still, I was making kind of my own friendships and connections. And then one of the first things that I went to, so the following week, there was like a Saturday serve Richmond community outreach was type in the thing. East End? No, it was downtown in the bottom and we were just picking up trash. Okay. But there was like a cookout beforehand or after. I think we did the food before. So I met people at that. Like I remember meeting Susan, now Crump. I remember reading, meeting Caitlin Melby. And yeah, and I, it was a weird thing because at that, I thought Jared was my person. I was like, this is the guy that I know. And mm-hmm. then somehow we ended up on different teams and he like left and went off and did something else (laughs) and I had a moment of panic where I was like I don't know who these people are and what I'm doing here but I just yeah I did the thing we jumped in (laughs) yeah so did you stay at the piles group long or I don't remember exactly I stayed a couple of months and then by the time we were dating officially and kind of on the trajectory that we were serious I moved to 
Jared's group at the time, which met at the Lachlans. It was like the Rainies were in there before they went to the Midlothian group. The Washes were there. The Elliots were in it when I first started because they actually led the group before they started their Chester one. So it was like a random smattering of people that I got to know. Yeah, no doubt. All right. So what's a fun early dating story you have? (laughs) Well, this is this is a jokes on me kind of story. But and I don't think it was early dating necessarily. But we would regularly go out to eat, I guess, usually on a Sunday after church meeting. And so we would have, you know, there's always the choice to make where are we going to go to eat. And so we would pick different places. And at some point, actually, was this even dating? This may have been in during my married years. I don't remember. <laughs> but somehow I had felt like I had brought up the um, the restaurant Cuba Cuba or Cuba Cuba, whatever it's called, that I had brought up multiple weeks and that it hadn't mm-hmm. gotten acknowledged. And then um, like we never went because other things ended up being the priority. And so at some point I have the memory that we were walking around the block of the church building downtown and I just made this like wild declaration. I was like, we're never going to Cuba, Cuba. <laughs> and it was just ridiculous because <laughs> of course we would eventually. And also I have a tendency of if somebody asks me for my preference, I'm never going to say, I'm not mm-hmm. just going to outright say it because I'm pretty flexible and I'll let somebody else who has a more strong feeling decide for the group. But when it's just me and Jared and he's genuinely asking, I actually need to express my yeah. desire and not hold him accountable for not intuiting yeah. my real feelings about the thing. And so it was like this pent up thing that I was like, no, I really want to go to this restaurant. And we hadn't, hadn't done it for months. But I can't I can't think did of any go? other like silly things. We did end up going. I think we didn't go that week, but maybe the next week. He was just like, I know where we're going. And we got in the car and we went there. (laughs) It is really yummy. I need to go again. Well, I guess we can ask the harder questions. Okay. (laughs) All right. Just thinking back on whenever you want to pull from, but just on obstacles that you had to overcome and what did you learn? Um, I think I talked about a little bit in my elementary years coming into a season of being quite shy and that definitely continued and kind of took over as another marker of my identity into into high school and, and even college of not wanting to to speak out um, having a lot of just general challenges with being fearful of man and what people thought of me so just doing whatever I could to blend in and not be noticed so even like I said I was a I was a good student but I n- never raised my hand in class to say anything and in in my high school english class we got graded on participation and discussion mm. and that was where i always got dinged and so i would i would work really hard to try to raise my hand at least once every class um but it was terrifying and i think it was just because i was going to say something and people were going to judge me for it right mm-hmm. so it was it was like well what if i say the dumb thing and then people don't think i'm smart anymore they think i'm dumb now and so i always had that um that fear of what people would think of me. And I think one of the areas that that ended up showing itself was that I waited a really long time to get baptized. Um, I became a Christian, I would say, when I was six and we had just moved to El Salvador. Um, My parents had given me this book. I think it was called The Survival Kit. and It was like this workbook. (laughs) But it basically walked through a plan of salvation and and I affirmed it. I was like, yeah, I, I believe this and I, I want to trust in the Lord. And so I prayed 
And I remember going to tell my parents what had happened. And, and I do believe that that was like a faithful commitment to the Lord as a really young child. And the church we were in at the time, I think I probably would have gotten baptized if it had been an option when I was six. Mm. But at that church, I think they had a rule. You had to be 12 or 13. So it wasn't an option. And then by the time that we were back in Costa Rica and I was, I was 12, at that point, I was terrified to get baptized. It just, I didn't want to do it because I would be up in front of people. I... I think at that church you gave kind of a testimony or you at least like answered some questions publicly. So I didn't want to do that. Like I didn't want people's eyes to be on me. And so I resisted any opportunity to baptize for years. And then my youth group actually did baptisms at our yearly retreat that we had. And so it was in the river and my 10th grade year, I think, um, I finally decided like I'm going to do it baptized Mm. so I got baptized by my my youth group leader and my parents were there and some other fellow missionaries came up to see as well as my peers and honestly like that was probably more challenging for me to be amongst my peers than to be in my church where it was adults and others who would look on and be like yes you're doing the right thing I'm glad I finally did it and got baptized but it is something that I can look back on and really see that I didn't follow through in obedience to do what I knew I ought to do. Mm-hmm. Being shy, is that still something you have to contend with? I think some. Um, I think I, I, I kind of read the room. So if, if, if it feels like I'm actually a true peer with people, then I'm comfortable to share and to talk. Or if it feels like it's my job. So we are community group leaders. And so in the context of our community group, I don't mind praying for instance like praying out loud but I have a really hard time praying out loud when we pray at member meeting Mm -hmm. like I just don't I don't find the moment to jump in and I'll wait until I'm the last one (laughs) and then the pastors will start saying the closing prayer and I'm like oh okay the time has passed (laughs) and so it's silly right like I know rationally that I can say, you know, I can fumble with my words and nobody's going to think of me any differently. But there's just like an apprehension there. And the same, like I, I didn't have a, a lot of trouble in my teaching to to share and to talk all the time. So I wasn't shy around my students because I knew I was in the authority, you know, I was in the position of authority. But when I'm around people who I feel like are more the leaders or more in authority then I tend to like submit and just step back and not want to speak and share mm-hmm. um so it's a we- it's a weird thing yeah because sometimes I can't like I it's only afterwards that I can look back and see like oh well why did I why was I more restrained in that setting um but I think I've grown in just being able to So like I said, if I see it as my job and my role and I go into a situation knowing I'm going to talk to people because like on a Sunday morning at church, if Mm -hmm. I think I'm the person who's been at this church for 10 years now, I need to be the welcoming person to somebody who's new. Like that's my job is to to be the one who starts a conversation with somebody. Then I can sort of psych myself up to do the thing. But if I don't think about it beforehand, I'm happy to just sit there (laughs) and watch over my kids and make sure they're not running wild and and walk out without really having talked to anyone. Yeah. Are there any other obstacles that you thought of? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I would say it's so much of an obstacle, but 
kind of a, I guess, a growth point for me has always been, like I said, I've always been a good kid. I've always been a rules follower. So as far as my faith was concerned, that tension between doing something just because I ought to, and it's the thing that I know should be done, and actually doing something because I've been changed by God, and I have a desire to to act the way that he would want me to act. And so just kind of navigating those waters. Because I've gone through seasons where I've been like, well, if I don't feel like it, I need to just stop doing the things, right? right? Like, it's easy for me to go to church every week or to go to a small group every week. Like I said, I've been going to a small group pretty much since high school every week, and it's just the thing that I do. And so there are times where I want to say, well, I need to just stop for a while because if I'm not feeling it, then Mm -hmm. it's not in earnest, right? Like it's a, it's a works without faith and that's bad. But then it's like, well, if it's a good thing to do, it's a good thing to do whether I feel good about it or not. And I think I've come around to seeing it the the opposite way Mm -hmm. where I continue to do the things and I pray for God to change my heart and to change my, um, to make me more aware of what I'm doing, right? Not just doing things out of some like rote feeling, but to be, yeah, to be aware, to be conscious, to be thoughtful about what I'm doing, um, to put my heart and my desires and affections towards things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you have failures and regrets? I think you kind of maybe touched on a little bit about maybe not raising your hand more, things like that. But yeah. I think I wish I had been bolder. Um, just in general, but especially in, in evangelistic ways, I always, I mean, like I said, I've always, I've known the truth and I've known God's plan of salvation through Jesus. And so I've, I've been a part of sharing that with people in the official ways of my parents' ministry. So in the middle and high school seasons where my dad was taking a lot of teams out If I was on break from school, I'd go with him. I worked as an interpreter between the English-speaking Americans Mm -hmm. and would just, you know, relay the message in Spanish. And so I was comfortable doing that because, again, I felt qualified and it was my job. And so I was like, okay, I'll do this. But in my own personal relationships, I've never been bold to actually say the words. Like I've, I've always been kind and loving and made a lot of friends with people who were more outcasts. One of my best friends in high school was a Taiwanese girl, and she and her sister were the only Taiwanese kids at my school. And we actually had like pretty big Korean population because Korea also sends out a lot of missionaries. And so my class was like 25% Koreans. And then this one girl, Yuan. And so I reached out to her and befriended her, but I wasn't very plain ever. You know, I just... I was a faithful friend and I sat with her at lunch, but I wish I had been, yeah, more outspoken about here's the why. And I, if somebody brought something up, like Yuan did specifically ask me, why are you happy all the time? Like it, it was one of those open door situations where I was like, sure. okay, obviously God is laying this in my lap. And so I was like, well, I believe in God and I love Jesus and he has changed my life and he's given me you know, the capacity to be joyful in any situation and whatever is going on. And she was not a happy person. She Mm -hmm. was sad and didn't have a good, super good family life and just was isolated and alone. And so I don't know. 
maybe more happened than I think did, but um, I wish I had been more bold. And in the same in college where I was happy to have spiritual conversations with people who opted in to have spiritual conversations because they came to, you know, my small group or my BCM Sunday night gathering, but I wasn't super outspoken otherwise. People always knew where I stood, like they knew I didn't cuss. And if they cussed around me, they'd be like, oh, sorry, Annie. (laughs) But it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't sharing the gospel with people, to be frank. And so I wish I I were more bold about that then. And I wish I were more bold about that now, you know, something to strive for. I've been super encouraged uh, just by you. You met somebody in the library and have brought her in and made her a friend to many other women. And I really enjoy knowing her too. So she's great. She's been a sweet friend. Um, Okay. So what's something on the other side of the spectrum that looking back that you can appreciate now that maybe you took for granted back then? I think I appreciate just the, the culture and the, the things that my parents did in our home growing up and the, the way that our, the faith truly was a part of their lives and not just the thing that they did as their job. Um, we always had kind of like a morning family time devotions and we would read the scriptures together. We would pray for situations that we knew about. We would pray for, we used to get a list of missionary birthdays. So every day they would oh, have wow. a, it would name the missionaries who had their birthdays with our organization. So um, that's really cool. We prayed for, in like I distinctly remember in my elementary years, we prayed for a couple of missionaries who had been kidnapped in South America and were just whereabouts unknown for years. So like I have those names. We did Advent things as a family and were, you know, looking to Jesus in that season. So I, I do really value those things now. And especially as a parent, knowing that those things take effort, that it's it doesn't just come easily to make those habits in your life as you're raising your family and juggling all the things of, of growing kids in school and sports. So I'm thankful for that. And, and I think I'm thankful too, just for my testimony being, being what it is. Cause at times I've been tempted, like I don't have a, I don't have a shocking testimony or like a super um, transformative like hinge point in my life where I didn't know Christ and then I did and then everything changed afterwards. And so there have been, yeah, there have been seasons where I looked back and I was like, well, I don't really have that much to say. (laughs) I've just always, you know, been around the church and, um, but kind of the same now as a, as a parent, I'm able to look back and see the beauty in that and see, I mean, Lord willing, that's the experience my kids will have, right? That they will have always been in the church, that they will have always known what it is to love Jesus and to know him. So it's a, it's a good thing. Yeah, you're the, you're probably your life is an answer to your parents' prayers. <laughs> yeah. And my grandparents are getting older and my sweet granddaddy turned 95 a couple of weeks ago. And anytime that we're together, he always makes some sort of comment about how long he and my grandma have been married and about that he had just prayed for, you know, his children and his grandchildren mm-hmm. to know the Lord and to be. I forget the words that he uses, but it's kind of like upstanding, contributing citizens sort of idea. (laughs) Um, And I think I used to roll my eyes at something like that as a kid, but now I'm like, 
Yes, it's not a given and it's only by right. God's grace. And that that should be one of our greatest desires, right? Is for those who come after us, who we have had the greatest influence on to follow us in the ways that we have followed Christ, right? right? And right. To, to also have life in him. So I think I look now and I see the beauty in that, like that legacy of faith. Honestly, like that's my mom's parents, but on my dad's side too, um, that his he grew up in a family of believers, and so it's a pretty it's a pretty good thing. It's a pretty beautiful thing to see. So. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share, Annie, about your your past? Um. No. We can stop. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then, Annie, would you please close out our time together in sharing the woman that you've chosen to honor from her church family, um, a woman that you have seen as someone that has shown Christ to you or to her community, and then pray for her. All right. So I wanted to share about Erica McCurdy, and Erica has been just as a sweet friend to me for many years. I got to know her maybe eight years or so ago when she moved to the north side where we were living at the time, and we became neighbors, and she has just been somebody who um, invested in friendships and in friendship with me and Jared, where she would stop by when she was on a walk and just randomly knock on the door or bake some muffins and she would bring them by and not just to our house but like drop them off to other people in the area um, in the neighborhood and so I was always have been encouraged by the effort that she puts into making friendships and maintaining them and she invited us over to dinner when we had a baby and then a toddler and a baby and not many people who are singles are necessarily inviting families over and making their space welcoming to to little kids and the same she's uh, the type of person who isn't offended to be invited at the last minute and just like seize the moment and come on over and hold the baby while you're cooking dinner Um, so I've been so grateful for that and it has been just a, a joy to see her now step into marriage and motherhood and now is expecting her second baby and so um just what? seeing her oh you didn't know <laughs> yeah some january or february okay um congrats and so just seeing her uh seek to honor the lord in these new roles of, of being a wife and a mom and then continue to to give her best to her work and her job outside the home. She's also an example to me of somebody who's always learning. She reads a ton, um, a lot of audiobooks while she's working, but she's always learning about things and she's always looking ahead to the next season. So she's reading the marriage books when she was preparing for marriage and she's been reading the um, the books about motherhood when she was expecting and books about education and teaching now that she's looking ahead to those seasons with her own kids. So I have just, she's been an example to me of a friend and somebody who, who, like I said, makes an effort to keep up with relationships and then to serve the church. Um, So she's been very faithful in that in our church. So I will pray for her. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for Erica and thank you for her friendship to me over the past years. I pray that you would build her up in this season as she is uh, expecting her second child, that you would give her strength and energy for each day, that you would give her all that she needs to 
to raise her son and to lead him to to a good life in you, that you would strengthen her in her marriage with Matt, uh, that they would be joined together and of like mind and all things, Father, that as they come up to points of conflict, that they would be uh, humbly putting those before you, Father, that they would seek your will in all things. And I just thank you for her friendship and for her love and service towards our church. And please be with her and continue to grow her in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Whole Home Podcast, a podcast that displays the unity of sisters in a local church and the way God so wonderfully gives us to each other in our uniqueness and in our sameness for His glory. The stories we share weave together as one grand testimony to the work of Christ and His faithful presence in the garden of our lives. Remember, the Master Gardener is always at work, so let's yield to Him and grow where we're planted.